from Psalm 95. Today, if you hear his voice, <clears throat> today, do not harden your hearts as they did in the rebellion. Numbers 14. On that day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. They went to the wilderness for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said they always go astray in their hearts. And they have no, known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Then he stops. The writer of Hebrews pulls out from that quote and he begins to address them and says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, lending you to fall, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. The problem with sin is that it tricks you into thinking it's not as sinful or as serious as it is. Hence, we need each other. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold to our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as it is in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and rebelled? Was it not those who left Egypt and were led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. So he's pulling back and saying, remember the story in Numbers 14. Remember the wilderness generation. Remember they went through the wilderness for 40 years. Remember that they were that close to the promised land and they did not enter because of unbelief. Remember them. And he lifts it and he applies it to the people he's presently speaking of. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you, he cares about the, in think about that for a church, a church that cares about every single individual soul's eternal salvation. Not the numbers, the programs, the budget, or anything else. Lest any of you should not find the promised land. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. And then he says, For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, as if not to convolute this anymore. He goes to Genesis 2.2. And he quotes Genesis 2.2 and he says, And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he says, They shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Again, he appoints a certain day. He's going back to Psalm 95. Today, saying, through David, who wrote Psalm 95, so long afterwards, in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken about another day later on. And so then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. The word there is sabbatismos. It's the only time that word occurs anywhere in the whole Bible. There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. 
Let us therefore strive, listen to the paradox, strive to enter the rest. Strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active. It is sharper than any double-edged sword, piercing to the divisions of the soul and spirit, the joints and of the marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him of whom we must give an account. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And that is jumping in to a separate entire sermon, which is the book of Hebrews. Speaking here particularly about a sword. The word of God being a sword sharper than any double-edged sword. If you remember from Zechariah 6, he is given a vision. He is given an image. He is told to take a crown and place it upon a man a man whose name was Joshua, placed it upon his head. This crown was laden with gold and silver. It represented not only being king of the realm of priests, but being king of the realm of state. That he would be a priest king. A priest king was prophesied to come. Israel never had priest kings. They always guarded against priest kings. They were commanded never to have priest kings. They had a whole separate institution called the priests, and they later on developed an institution called the king. Oftentimes the king would accrue power to himself, and he would step into the realm of the priests, and he would start to perform sacrifices and do priestly things, sacred things. But very rarely, if never, no priest ever had so much power as to move into the realm of being like a king. And then Zechariah 6, we're told that there will be a priest, and he also will be a king. And so when Jesus arrives into the world, he does all these priestly things. He doesn't subdue people. He doesn't slay them. He doesn't go to war. He does everything that the priest would have been doing. Anytime anyone was ever healed, they were supposed to go to the priest to report a miraculous healing. And Jesus shows up doing everything that should have come from the temple. Healing, taking away disease, forgiving sins. Adulterous woman comes to him and he says, your sins are forgiven. He makes atonement. He doesn't slay. He doesn't bring justice. He doesn't kill anybody at all for their sins, even though they all deserve to die. But in Israel, if you sinned grossly, if you committed not only a sin, but a a travesty or a crime against the state, the king would be the one who would sentence you to death. But Jesus sentenced no one to death in his first coming. He comes entirely as a priest. He functions as a priest. And then after that, he dies as a priest. He dies as a sacrifice for our sins. And then after that, he is exalted to the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, and given a name which is above every other name, and all authority in heaven and earth has been given to him. And he takes on this role as a cosmic king, who is now also a priest, a king who is wounded, that in Revelation he still has scars on his hands. A king who is able, we're told here in Hebrews 4, to sympathize with you and me. Sympathothy. That is, sim with pathos is passion, suffering. He has suffered with you. And he is your king. 
and he understands. But we're told here that this sword that we have is a spiritual sword. For the word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces into the divisions of the soul and the spirit, the joints and the marrow. This sword that's been given to the church is a very powerful sword. It is the word of God. And it is not a word as though you would just read. Notice what this word is. This word is performative. This word has power in and of itself. It is matched with the presence of God. This word has divine-like attributes. It knows things. It sees nakedness. It's eyes of him whom we must give an account. Everything's exposed before his word is an extension of the character of God. The word comes in this present moment, in this day, through the speaking of the gospel. And it is more than just giving the latest news or something that happened or any words you could read in any book. This word is matched by the power of God. And it is able by the Spirit to pierce into the depths of your soul and cut it apart. It is an active word. It is a living word. This is the sword that has been given to the church. No creature is hidden from his sight. We're talking about the word, but it sounds like we're talking about God because they are one and the same. Notice the location of this sword, though. Who actually has the blade? Right after he speaks about this sword, he says we have a great high priest who is passed into the heavenly places. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, he says, but one who in every respect has been tempted and yet is without sin. Let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. This sacred sword has been given uniquely to the church, that we have been given the eternal gospel. That gospel comes out through God's word, revealed through the scriptures, and then explicitly preached and spoken to, admonished by real people with real mouths and a real Holy Spirit, quickening the word to make it alive and sharp and active. This is the sword that the church bears. It is a spiritual, holy, sacred, priestly thing. See, the priests would cut the animal up into the depths of the animal. The animal was representing the person who offered the animal. That animal, if you were there, was you. For your sin, you are cut open. For your sin, you die. But you don't die. This animal will die for you. But you actually have to cut the animal yourself with the blade. And then you have to give the animal over to the priest, who will chop the animal up into a bunch of little pieces. And all the inner sides of the animal are seen. They are, you could say, open, laid bare, naked. No creature is hidden from his sight. You see the inner workings of the whole animal. The joint and marrow. The heart, the liver. It's all there. The inner workings of the animal are expressly displayed before you. It's gruesome. It's hideous. It's all that. Now see, that is just an image. That is called a Fisher-Price coloring book. 
That's what the Old Testament, all it is. This is just, this is just show and tell. This is just pictures. The reality of all those broken animals is the word of God cutting your insides. The word of God laying you open, laying you bare before him. That the thoughts and the intentions, the inner things of your own psyche that you yourself cannot divide and often don't even know your own motivations. That God's word brings that out and separates it, shows you your sin, shows you your fault. And as you see all that, it is here that we are told that we have a priest, Jesus, who is a great high priest, and he's the one who holds his blade. See, the problem, the problem here is that the church was given the sword. And here is the main point of all that we read through Hebrews 3 and 4. Is the church is a group of people. That's exactly what the word means. A church is a group of people. A very large crowd or assembly. A congregation. That's all it is. The only thing you add to that is to say this. The church is a group of people that are going somewhere. So contrary to what it appears at this moment, we are all here sitting. We're not going anywhere, but we are. We're always moving. Time does not hold. Tomorrow will come. Five minutes ago has gone. We are moving. We cannot help but move to this final destination. And so the reason this is so complicated or convoluted is he lays out, the writer of Hebrews lays out a timeline in order for you and I to enter into it, to see ourselves in this story. We profess the Apostles' Creed. We profess something that was made by someone else about the same Lord that we serve. We have entered into a timeline and we are moving in one direction or the other. It starts here where he says that it starts with God. God rested after he made creation, he said. Then he mentions the Exodus people, the people in the wilderness, that they were looking for a land to rest. And then he mentions David in Psalm 95, who wrote a psalm about today we should try to enter that rest. And then he mentions himself writing here to this church. Today, now you should enter this rest. And now here in the 21st century, I'm reading to you Hebrews and saying, now today you should enter that rest. We are all looking back to this one destination that everybody was trying to get into. And the warning of it all, the warning this morning, the reason we've even been given this sword is the sober reality that many who seek to enter that rest do not Enter that rest. That's why he went to all the trouble to lay out all those examples. That's why he went to all that trouble to lay out the timeline of everybody who has began to seek God, to walk with God, and they did not make it to the end. The story in Numbers 14, of course, the whole generation was told, you are not permitted to come into this promised land, return back to the wilderness and wander there for 40 years and die. All these examples come to us today. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. 
That's what he says in Psalm 95. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as they did in the rebellion. A day of testing in the wilderness where your father put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Today, today, today is the context of immediately now. Hearing God's voice now. The reason we've been given the sword is because our hearts are hard. The spiritual sword that's been given to the church is for remedying this situation. So with Numbers 14, the fathers that were told put them to the test. They come out of Egypt. God rescues them through slavery. They go through the wilderness in a reasonable fashion. They eventually get to this place called the Promised Land, the southern border of what today is Israel. And they stand on that southern border and they look up to the north to this place that God is wanting them to go. The whole reason they were to leave Egypt, to be free, to be free so they could have their own land and have food and have prosperity. All the stuff we want, which again, if we're just painting with a coloring book here, those are just pictures of heaven. Everything you want, any good cup of coffee you drank, anything you ever enjoyed in this life, it's nothing. It is nothing. They are just types of what you really want. You want to rest. You want to be with him. So they go to this land. They go to this land. And they send 12 spies into it. And out of the 12, only two respond with a positive report. A minority report in which they say, This is God's land. He has given it to us. We can take the land. This land is ours. The protection, the shadow of the other nations has fallen. They do not have God's protection. This is for us to have. But the other ten look into this promised land and they see all these giants. They see all the reality in which they should not win to take this land. And they are afraid. And they are afraid and they are scared. And so they don't go. They say we will not take this promised land. We do not want it. It's always in scriptures called the Lord's land. It's called their promised land. But then at that time, they call it the Lord's land. They say, this is God's land. He he wants this land for somebody, but it's not for us. The warning was, they did not enter because of their unbelief. And when you actually look at the story, it looks like they just had reasonable fear. I don't want to go there because I think we're going to lose the war. I don't think those nations will be subdued by us. I think they will subdue us. And then they say, oh, that we could go back to Egypt. Oh, that we could go back to slavery. Oh, that we could go back to that place where at least they fed us. They told us what to do. We had no freedom and we worked long days. But I don't want to go up here and die for the promised land. They would not trust that God has provided the way. They would not trust that God has provided for them to have life. And so they didn't have it. They did not enter because of their unbelief. And that's the whole warning. And what's so scary, if scary is the right word, what's sobering, what's concerning, is that that was one incident in which here the writer of Hebrews draws it out. And says, no, 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 it's always been this way. And he goes to cite Psalm 95, where David says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart, as they did in the rebellion. That is, hundreds of years after that fact, David in the psalm says, 
Do not make the same mistake. You think that's a one-time incident in which they had a unique promise that they did not actualize because they would not believe and they would not enter into God's rest? Psalm 95 brings it out and says, no, 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 no. No, that is all of us everywhere, every time, every generation has to choose. Every church has to choose. Will you believe the gospel? Will you believe the promises of God? Because if you think that you would be afraid of giants and wouldn't want to go to war, and all you would think, all you would have to think is that's a pretty reasonable thing. Maybe we're just not strategically positioned militarily to win this battle. That's what you would think. But what God interpreted is, why, he said, after they said that, his immediate response was, why does this people despise me? Why do they despise me? See, it's not about your power. It's not about your ability. Has God saved us in the Lord Jesus Christ or not? Well, here's how he plays it out. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil and unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. He goes on to say, exhort one another every day as long as you see the day. Calling today that no one of you would be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So, take care, exhort. All things to do with the word. Take care with the word. Cut your heart open with the word and look. Look inside. Take care. And then exhort one another. Take God's word and cut each other with it. That's the image. Exhort one another with this word. Why? So that you wouldn't be hardened. By what? The deceitfulness of sin. The reality is that you and I, we all know very well how sin works in our lives. For example, think in your own personal life of when you've been close with the Lord. And when you've been far from the Lord. If you've ever woken up from that dream and realized how far you've drifted from him, you would inevitably retrace your steps to find there were a series of rebellious, stubborn sins in your life that you did not think were that serious. And that is the deception of it. It moves you just slowly like the waking in the sea where you're at drift and at drift so long before you know you're miles off the coast. You're miles away from where you should be. This is the reality that we have to exhort one another, cut one another with God's word, to open each other up and examine each other. We need other perspectives than our own. Hence, congregation. Hence, church, assembly. We are in this together. Think of people who are on the member rolls here at this church, who have never worshipped in over a year or two. Not because of any other reason that they don't want to. They don't want to. The deceitfulness of sin. That, that is all it is. Not everybody makes it. Like not everybody actually enters the promised land. But they're part of the assembly. So you can be in the church. You can be associated as a Christian. You can be some way on the move walking through the desert. But you do not and you will not go into the promised land. The warning after warning is they do not make it. They do not go. They do not enter. Because it's a lack of understanding what's been given to the church as the sword. Any churches 
that don't take the seriousness, the sharpness of God's word and actually use it. It is a scalpel for dissecting cancer. And the deceitfulness of sin are very hard little tumors that you don't know you have them unless you would cut open to find them. The promised land is an image there of the eternal resting of God. He goes on to say somewhere, and he quotes Genesis 2-2, that there was a seventh day where God rested on the seventh day from all his work. That's the very first rest. That's the rest we're going to. Realize this, everything that God ever made, the whole reason thermodynamics and physics and everything works is because God stopped creating stuff. And he set in natural laws of order. Because on the seventh day, he sat down and said, all right, Newton, figure that one out. Because I'm done. I'm not going to do anything different. You're going to have a uniformity of nature. Things will be this way for a long time. And there will be a time in which we enter in that same rest. This promised land is an image of that rest. It's not the real thing. For he goes on to say, if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So that first generation didn't make it. They all died in the wilderness. And they were all afraid that their kids would be killed in war. So they didn't go. And then God said, I'll take your kids and I'll make them warriors. And they'll take the land that you wouldn't have because you were afraid and didn't believe me. And so he took the next generation and they went in. Joshua was the one who led that next generation into the promised land. And so here he says, now if Joshua had given them the real rest, that is, if it was all just about getting into the land, then Psalm 95 makes no sense. Because not Psalm 95 says, today if you hear his voice in our heart and your heart, as it was in the rebellion, there remains a real rest to be had. Joshua's rest, going into that promised land, it's not really about all this dirt. The Beatitudes, Jesus comes and says, Blessed are you, you will inherit the earth, the new heavens and the new earth. Therefore, the promise stands today. The promise of entering that rest still stands. Lest us fear, let us fear lest anyone should not be able to reach it. For the good news, and here it is, the good news came to us just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them because it was not united with faith with those who listened. You can hear it, hear it, hear it. The gospel, the gospel, the gospel. And if you don't believe it, it's not yours. If you don't own it, you have no promised land. You will go for a nice stroll through the wilderness with a really nice group of people and sweet people and they make potlucks and it's all wonderful and then you will die in the desert and you will not go into the rest of God. Do you believe the gospel? Their gospel was, I've taken you out of Egypt, and you will enter this promised land. And they didn't believe that. And why not? How do you know they didn't believe? They didn't obey. They were afraid, as anyone here naturally would be, to say, I don't want to go to war. How normal of that. But it doesn't matter. God said, this is your land. So if you're afraid, your fear can be cloaked in what actually is the most treasonous, putrid, hateful sin 
This was one of the biggest sins in the Old Testament. This is a huge one. It's up there like with the golden calf and stuff. Like this is a big deal. Do you believe the gospel? Has anything caused you fear that is contrary to the truth of Jesus' love and lordship in this world? If you don't believe that, you won't obey that. If your whole life, if all of your days aren't wrapped around that truth, take heed. Take heed. Lest any of us not reach the promised land for lack of mixing that truth with real, genuine faith. Believing it. Obeying it. Living the Lordship of Christ. Every day. Destruction that comes because of distractions. It's all about distractions. And this is why with the sword God has given the church a day. You notice he talks about seven, 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 the Sabbath idea, the, the day of rest. That's what the Sabbath was. They were looking for a rest. God gave the Old Testament Israelites a day of rest. And just like it's really not all about the animals, and just like it's really not all about the land, in the same way, that day of rest they had, it really wasn't all about that day. It was all looking forward. The animals to Christ. The land to the new heavens and new earth. And that day of rest is looking to the rest that God had entered into by the first page of the Bible. After he finished creation, he sat down and he rested. And he waited there on his throne for anyone to come who would ever want to enter into that rest. And we never got that far because we never got past the first tree. We never could enter into that rest. We never did any good works to rest from. We only did evil works. And the whole rest of the scriptures is just trying to unravel that conundrum. And so Jesus has done a good work. He came in and redeemed. He healed the sick and the blind. He overcome, came every temptation, and he loved everybody unto the point of death. And then he sat down. And therefore the gospel is that rest. But all these distractions take us away. I had uh, wanted to message somebody on Twitter, and I'd never had a Twitter because I just don't need that extra thing in my life. But I did it. I made a Twitter account because I just wanted to talk to one person, kind of a famous person. Um, and I figured if I made a Twitter, maybe I could private message him, and that's what I did. Um, I don't know if it went well yet, but we'll find out. Anyway, now I'm getting all these dings from Twitter about all my other contacts that I need to sync with my Twitter account. They're like, so-and-so's on Twitter, so-and-so's on Twitter, ding, 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 ding. All this week, I'm just getting these dings on my phone about Twitter. I'm like, oh, so many tweets. Tweets, I don't even have any friends yet. I'm getting tweeted all the time. The distractions, the distractions, right? It is constant in this world. Tomorrow will be another. You need to make more money. You need to do that thing with your job. You need to do that improvement on your house. You need to do this and you need to do that. And then, guess what? You are wandering in the wilderness and you've created your own version of a subterfuge of hell. You have no direction. You are living for yourself. And in the back of your mind, the deceitfulness of sin is you think you're a Christian. You think you love Jesus and you do not. And you do not obey him. And the whole course of your other six days of the week have nothing to do with him. That's the distraction. That's why in the wilderness they're doing this if you look at the map. They're just going all around. Because they don't have 
the definitive direction of wanting God and entering into the rest of God. And so therefore, he says this, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from all his work as God did from his. There will be a day when it will all be done. There will be a day where all your labor will count. Everything you've ever done, good in this life, will be accounted for, put in a bin, and sat on a shelf. And you will enter into rest and waiting for the final day of judgment. And he's saying to strive for that. That is, in obedience, actually work hard believing that Jesus is Lord. In every one of your endeavors, strive to enter that rest. So then, therefore, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Because we have not had that rest yet. So the same reason they had rests in the Old Testament is because they were looking for the final rest of God. We, enter into that story, have been looking for that same rest of heaven. We have not realized it yet. Therefore, and this is why the unique word is used, sabbatismos. Hebrews 4.9, there, therefore there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. The only time this word is ever used, the word is uniquely used to describe Sabbath resting. That it would be from week to week that we would come here to be cut by the word of God. To open up our hearts before the word of God. To have any of the deceitfulness of sin examined in us by the word of God. Week by week. Week by week. And there is nothing amazing about that. There's nothing special about that. It doesn't seem really exciting. It's not flashy. But this is actually how you get to the promised land. Many start well. And don't finish. It's a famous story of the Terra Nova expedition in 1911. It was their version of maybe going to the moon. The beginning of the 1900s. And there were two explorers that raced to go to the South Pole. This story is somewhat famous. The one explorer was British. The other was Norwegian. Roland Amson. And then you had Robert Scott, the British man. And they both set a time to compete to see who could get to the South Pole first. And it is a wilderness. It is the only last uncharted place in the whole globe at that time. It was their version of outer space, what we might have done with Russia. And they're racing. And what you see with these two men is exactly what Hebrews is saying. There is a way to wander in the wilderness that makes sense. And there is a way to wander in the wilderness in which you will die. Amundsen, he studied his maps. He lived with the Eskimos. He lived on small food and rations for years to try to simulate living under dire circumstances. He set up supply depots going into the South Pole with many flags, black flags in the white snow to draw them out. He put three tons of food in every depot when he didn't even need nearly that much. In case he would ever miss one of them, he wouldn't all die with him and his men. They could live on the food from depot to depot, even by skipping one. And then this other man, Scott, he took horses into the South Pole. At that time, the new technology, he had a motor sled, and it froze in the very sub-below zero temperatures. Each depot he had, he only put one ton of food. He had to hit every depot. If he missed, they would starve and die. The biggest difference between the two, Amundsen made a point to go 20 miles every day. If 
The tundra and the weather was terrible, almost unhospitable. He would still get all his men out of their tents, and they would go through that wilderness 20 miles every day. If the weather was really beautiful, they would still only go 20 miles easily and then rest the second half of the day. Scott, the English explorer, only traveled when the weather was good. He only came to church when it was Christmas and Easter. He only traveled every once in a while. He didn't understand how Sabbath worked. He didn't understand that he needed regularity in his spiritual life. He traveled then and made it to the South Pole 34 days after Amson. And on the way back, everyone else died in his group. They had no more food, no more provision. And that is exactly the story. There remains a Sabbath for the people of God. You and I are on a long journey. We are an assembly gathered together. We are going to a place. And we are warned here this morning that many don't make it. Therefore, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. In which God's word, his sword, would cut us open. So that we would not be taken in by the deceitfulness of sin. Who has this blade in their hand? It is Jesus Christ, our Lord. He has this sword as a priest. He is able to sympathize with you and me. So let us have him cut us week to week. Let us have him examine us week to week. As we take this communion, what we're saying is, these little pieces of bread, they are all cut, so very small. That blood that was spilled, he can sympathize. He knows how to handle this blade, and he will use it for our good. And we will enter that promised land, weak by week, we must learn to rest, to stop everything one day out of seven and fix our eyes upon our Lord and Savior. You think you don't need to and you will be wrongly mistaken by deceiving your own self and being stranded in the wilderness. So let us do that. As we take this communion, what we are doing is promising with God and one another that we are in this together. That is what a church is. A church is a group of people that are really in this together. It is a promise made by blood. It's a big promise. Let us pray. Father, Lord, we pray that you prepare our hearts to mean what we do here shortly. Lord, that you would cut us open now. Lord, let us examine ourselves now. Lord, when we come here, we are saying with this communion, we have no sin that we are aware of. If there is anything wrong in us, Lord, we repent of it immediately that we would be right, that we would make this promise before you the right way. Dear Father, Lord, please speak to us. Today, your word is living and active. Let it be pressed upon our mind as we come before you right now. 
Amen.